Hi, and welcome to the Team Deacons podcast. This podcast is a dialogue between Roger and James Deacons, joined by Matt Wyman, starting from a submitted question and ending who knows where. We're also joined by guests on occasion. We're connecting through Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio. If you'd like to submit a question, please do so by emailing pod, P-O-D, at rogerdeacons.com. We're really pleased today to have a special guest with us who's going to help us dive into some technical aspects of workflow. He's a color scientist with whom we've worked for many years. He's kind of, I guess you could say, a genius at these things. We'd like to welcome Joachim Zell, or Jay-Z, to his friends from Ethom Hollywood. Jay-Z, the first thing we like to ask our guests is how they got to where they are now. Did you dream of being a color scientist from a young age? Well, young age, I, I think I started with uh, 16, becoming a radio and television repair technician. And from there, um, I always got picked up by mentors then, which pushed me one step higher at the time. Uh, it was actually interesting that where I am right now, it's not my own choice. I always <laughs> found mentors and later I find uh, found customers like you and, and Roger, um, who then thought, huh, that's uh, not too bad what he's doing. Let's bring him on again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, can you define what a color scientist is? Yeah, it's interesting. So I um, actually went to university in Wiesbaden, Germany, and studied film and television engineering. And there was no color scientist or imaging scientist uh, to choose from as well. Um, I guess the market is too small to have a huge amount of imaging or color scientists out there. You you study something getting close, and then again, you get picked, and um, then you boost your knowledge in that area. Um, I think looking around the world, I know six or seven of them in Japan, Germany, France, and in the U.S., um, yeah, you, you get picked by a company which needs this talent, and then you you develop your own talents uh, more to feed into this very small niche market. So a color scientist is concerned with translating the color in the right way? Ah, yeah. So now um, uh, the human aspect is very important. We take care that uh, the human eye is satisfied looking at images um, uh, captured and processed by technology. It's an analog camera and film or a digital camera and pixels. But at the end, there's always a human eye needing to see it right on a screen. So we actually help to translate the bits and pixels uh, into the right color gamut, color format, so that it looks right to the human eye on the screen or on the TV set. Yeah. It sounds basically like you're describing a LUT, developing a LUT, but you do so much more. But I know a lot of people are very interested in knowing more about LUTs, so we're going to have to talk about that anyway. So let's start with that, and then let's get into workflow and all that. 
Aha, so on one side you said the podcast takes one hour, on the other hand side you want to ask what a LUT is, I think I need a week. But, uh, <laughs> and it has to be in simple terms. Yes, simple terms, yeah. I would say it's a number crunching of some sort. Um, you have a lookup table, it's a, it's a table of numbers, you have an an input set of numbers and a lookup table and the output set of numbers. So now, um, easy terms, talking about dollar numbers, everybody knows what they have in their wallet. If you now have $10 and you want to go on vacation, you can most likely go to your local pool around the corner for $10. If you now add a lookup table of $2,000 to it, you can make it to Hawaii, for example. So your normal <laughs> amount plus the lookup table of $2,000 gives you $2,010 and you can go to Hawaii. So it's uh, so, changing numbers. Yeah. So if you have a lookup table of 2000, <laughs> it means that you actually can have more colors. I'm just trying to bring it back yeah, to colors here. Yeah, clear, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, love the pool idea, but aren't we talking about how whatever you're shooting is reacting and what color it's creating, basically? Yeah, so in the past, we had the advantage that the camera had a wider gamut what a monitor could see. So we had to bring down the numbers from a high dynamic range to a smaller right. dynamic range to still make the picture look right on a monitor. Now that we have high dynamic range monitors, we can keep the signal nearly like it is, but still do conversion. So a conversion could now be, you can create a look to an image. There's print film, pre-visualization LUT to make a, a digital image look like a, a film emulation. And then you have to take care that it looks right on a Rec. 709, Rec. 2020 or P3 display. So um, the lookup table is doing two things. It um, it first satisfies the creative need of the director and the DP. And then uh, uh, we take care that all these different deliverables look right as well by adding a second lookup table to it um, and to make the... Basic Mm -hmm. Basically, that second lookup table is really trying to make the end result match what the first LUT was doing, right? Yeah. So um, uh, what we like to do is ask the director of photography, what what is your intent? The director of photography, of course, is in close contact with the director of the movie. So there is a discussion going on. They let us know what they want to go for. And uh, we then pick the best quality display in a theater, most likely, where then the, the DP watches the movie through the whole capture time and during the DI. After the movie then is done, then we ask the studio or the content owner, which other deliverables would you like to see and derive from there. So P3 is the today's standard which is used in cinemas. So if your movie goes out um, to the cinema, to the highest percentage, it's shot for the cinema, we try to have a P3 color gamut. Um, so color gamut is, uh, 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 in easy words, the, the saturation, the richness of the image, and the tonal curve, the gamma, is how um, we we translate the pixels from the shadows into the highlights. An S-curve is used quite often. And I know so, I, 
I use now words which we might have to describe. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so P3 basically, though, has a larger range than, let's say, Rec. 709, right? Yes, yes. P3 is a wider range. There is um, a CIE chart, which was uh, developed in, in 1913 by the Commission Internationale de... And then there is an E at the end, but what is another meaning in French? So the CIE chart describes the human visual system. It's, a, it's formed like a horseshoe, and inside of there we have triangles, and the smallest triangle in there which describes an industry standard is REC 709. The next bigger wow. one is P3, and then REC 2020. Who uses REC 2020? That, that was my first thought. Yeah. REC 2020 is actually interesting um, when uh, Roger, you looked at the first DIs in an e-film theater, we actually had REC 2020 there in our projectors already. By default, the projectors came with a P3 standard, but we had filters in there which brought the primaries out to, to REC 2020, from P3 to REC 2020, because REC 2020 comes closer to what film uh, can do oh, and the film oh. gamut is wider and when we started to do the eyes only the post-production facilities had projectors but not the theaters each theater right. still oh, had film wow. projectors so the target right. was to match film and not match digital so we used off-the-shelf available uh, projectors and put custom filters in there to make it more look like film. We kept it very secret for years and years. This was one of the e-film secrets. We don't know. <laughs> right. You're hearing this it first was so, here. so secret, I've never known about it. <laughs> yeah, you don't have ah. to, we don't have to hide it anymore because no, REC 2020 don't. is now the same color gamut as the XP30 of e-film. Yeah. Ah, right. We have gone in and sat with you to set our LUT. And basically, just for anybody else who hasn't created a LUT with you, we go into the DI suite and we play around with things like the color saturation and the contrast and all of that. And then from what we do and the way we like it to look, you create a LUT from that? Yes. Uh, first is the... the we, we have hundred thousands of LUTs by now, because this is what we do every day. And <laughs> um, I looked up my notebook, and uh, in 2009, I met you in Santa Fe on True Grit, which was right. shot on film. And Beverly Wood called me to her office and said, uh, Jay-Z, you better go to Santa Fe, and somebody needs to try to convince Roger Deakins that we perhaps possibly watch dailies on a monitor and not on print film anymore. This is another new thing we're learning. Mm. Ooh, you are telling all the secrets. <laughs> Go on. So, so there was my mission to make this monitor look like the print you were looking right. at every day because <laughs> we already right. did send print film to Santa Fe. So you had a Log Pro desktop That's film right. projector. Right. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And mm. uh, so I asked Ari to give me the same Log Pro film projector, and uh, I put a Log Pro film projector and the monitor side by side, we analyze what both uh, systems are doing. And you're using the same elements, right? Because 
Exactly. You're looking at a monitor of the exact same scene. Exactly. So we, we did actually, the whole process took us uh, two weeks to get there, but there was a lot of stuff happening before. Ari and E-Film did develop a film characterizer together. They are two machines like this existing in the world where we can put film negative on and uh, measure all the patches, put print film on and measure all the patches, knowing what the lab is doing then and what the film is doing, getting all the data back and make a print film pre-visualization LUT from it. So we right. can... So you, you are basically using the lab printer lights on the negative to replicate what the print would be, give the actual film print would be giving you, but replicate that as a digital image, right? Exactly. And this is a very long process. So to measure yeah. all these patches in detail, the characterizer runs for two days and two nights. And uh, uh, a lookup table with uh, a 17 by 17 by 17 cube. Um, there I, I, I become technical again. A 3D lookup table <laughs> has three mm -hmm. axes, X... Y and Z, and uh, a 17 by 17 by 17 uh, 3D lookup table, a small one, for example, is uh, 4,913 patches, and uh, they, they have to be read in non-real time after each other. And then the, inter the interesting part is actually, uh, uh, you said uh, just printer lights, Roger. Um, it is also known in the industry that printer lights are different between Deluxe and Technicolor and Photochem, yeah. and the lab is slightly different yeah. as well. So, yeah. So we had each combination running actually uh, for Photochem, for Technicolor, and for Deluxe, and we had yeah. Kodak Neck, Kodak Print, Fuji Neck. Kodak print, Fuji neck, Fuji print. So we had all different combinations running. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Jay-Z, I think to get a little bit deeper into LUTs or less deep, uh, <laughs> something that a lot of, because LUTs seem, in the world of digital, people can go on Instagram, they can hit a, a photo and select a filter and it changes the way their photos look. And they, they just think it happens, and they don't know how it happens. <laughs> so now I think with a lot of young filmmakers and people I know, they look at LUTs as something where they can, because like you said, a lot of people have already created them, they're already out there. It's just something they can slap on, and they don't know how it happens, and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> so is there a way to explain how that process is taking place um, you know, is it actual math? Like you said, like you're receiving ones and zeros from the camera sensor and it comes as a certain color. Then you have to go transfer that data to a, a different number pattern to have an output that's unique. Like, can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Then I just finished my explanation about true grit. Uh, it is. It is still. We are still getting there. Um, so we did analyze without Roger knowing, without us knowing that that we have to go to Santa Fe to match this film projector to a monitor. We had this data available. Then we picked the best available monitor at the time, which was a, a, a plasma monitor, the Pioneer Curo. You cannot buy it anymore, but it's a beautiful piece of equipment. Um, we measure then what the monitor is doing as well, send patches to the monitor and analyze it in detail. So we know what the neck is doing, which Roger is using. We know what the print is doing, which is desired for the cinema release. 
And then we measure what the monitor is doing. So this monitor as well came pretty close to P3 back in 2009. Not 100%, but we had to build a custom output lookup table and had our custom input uh, uh, lookup table, or the, 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 the actually the creative lookup table, which was this neck print combination, which was chosen on TrueGrid. We combined this two lookup table into one. So we had the creative look right, and we had the destination color space right. Um, and then I traveled to Santa Fe, where I found out that uh, James is actually running the equipment. And uh, so James and I did set up this side-by-side -side screening uh, setup. We call it dual stimulus. So we have the known film projection, and then we have this new digital, so dual stimulus. And we can really side-by-side Without smoke and mirrors, we see it right away. What you see is what you get. And we did fun show. times. Yeah, <laughs> fun times. Yeah, yeah. We did show Roger then, I think for one week, we watched digital and film side by side. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, until I think we decided we go digital in 2009 yeah. for the dailies yeah. only. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So then to answer your question, Matt, we had a intimate knowledge of what the monitor is like and what the creative look should be like. So from this custom monitor, we, of course, had to go to the P3 official cinema distribution standard. But since we built a lookup table ourselves, we then took the custom output lookup table for the Curo out and put the common industry standard lookup table as replacement on top of it and could go to the DI. So Roger then comes after, I don't know, 100 days of shooting and then half a year of editorial. We meet in our DI theater. And the most depressing moment for us would be that the cinematographer says, that's not the image I remember. So that's what we fight. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we fight every day for. That the cinematographer, the content owner, the studio, the director, they come in and say, "Yes, that's my movie. This is how it should look like." So if you try this at home, you better take care that you have standard displays. That your display follows an industry standard. Um, and there's Semti, the Society of Motion Pictures uh, and Television Engineers. Uh, they bring out standards. They created uh, Rec 709 and P3 and, and Rec 2020 standards. So if you follow them, uh, then you get a good result with your lookup table. Yeah. Just one thing quickly, that, that 2009 sessions that we had, that was the beginning of the eView system, right? And then, yeah, then we had to find a name for it, and it was called okay. the eView system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is how we do watch our dailies to this day because we know it's calibrated as closely as it can be to what we're seeing in the DI, and it's a very secure system, so it's okay to look see dailies on it. So it's great. It's got to be more straightforward now that I mean, I know some people still shoot film, but I don't. Or haven't done lately. I mean, it's got to be more straightforward, hasn't it, if you're shooting digitally? It's actually, it depends on which camera you use. Um, oh, my God, yes, cameras. Course, I forgot yes, that, yes. sorry. Yeah. And and then also, it, it also depends on which service is behind the camera. Cameras can be calibrated in different ways. It's again like back in the film days where we had Kodak right. going to Photocam, Kodak going to Deluxe, and Kodak mm. going to Technicolor. 
it turns out that the camera manufacturer you choose has a very good service program. So when we pick up uh, this camera in Hollywood or pick up the camera in London or in Germany or in Budapest, wherever we are, we have the same calibration procedure under the hood and get good matchings uh, on top of the good quality of the camera. So there again, if there's a good imaging science underneath of the camera, we <laughs> we are good again. Yeah. Can you just just talk about that briefly in layman's terms? Not only just differences between cameras, uh -huh. not just what they're recording, but what they output. I mean, a lot of manufacturers kind of talk about cameras having a certain, you know, there's the there's not only what they can take in, but it's what they put out, mm -hmm. and then it's debearing that image well, as well. That, that whole, was my next subject: yeah, is that. debearing <laughs> is to talk about what the debearing is and right. how it bears on the end right. result. Right. I mean, maybe the, the whole kind of overview of the camera um, and what really comes out of the camera and how it's dealt with. So, um, uh, yeah, very interesting. Where should we start here? But mm. uh, 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 it helps a lot again that um, the video tap uh, of the camera matches the raw recording format. That's step one. That uh, Because you on set look at a quickly debayered image, which gets debayered in camera, gets put on the video tab, comes to the calibrated monitor. So there it often goes wrong that the manufacturer doesn't give the right data to the community that we cannot get the first step right. So step one is pick a system where you can guarantee that the video tab and the raw recording is matching. And, and one thing we're saying too is that LUTs are on top of the image. It's not actually changing the image. I just want to make sure that was mm -hmm. clear. Yeah, that's very important, actually, that we record the raw. Um, mm -hmm. I see it when, when people um, uh, go out and sh shoot commercial spots. I see that the digital imaging technician or the onset colorist quite often color corrects on top of the LUTed image, which is a waste of bit depth and a waste of pixels. But it gets them out there as well. It satisfies the need of their clients. So perhaps it's allowed because they get paid at the end and they get rebooked. So it's not too bad, I guess. But the better way would be to what you just said, James, put the LUT all the way at the end and do the processing underneath the LUT to have a wider bit depth and a wider gamut. Exactly. Uh, to work with. And explain the bearing so everybody ah. understands what the bearing means. Yes, so the bear pattern sensor is a sensor where the pixels lay next to each other, side by side, not on top of each other. Uh, on film, for example, we had the cyan, magenta, yellow layer on top of each other. So the, each light uh, did hit the same piece of grain at the same X and Y position, but a bear pattern is spread out east and west and pixels are next to each other. So we always have to combine red, green and blue to get a white pixel together. There is no straight one pixel white and black on a Bayer pattern. So if you now pick a structure, a complex texture of, of clothing, where a black thread inside of a white shirt has the same width 
like the the pixel width of the Bayer sensor, you will get Morey, uh, you will get uh, Bayer pattern errors that you see red, green, and blue pixels left and right on that on that right. on that line. It's also uh, a good example is blonde hair in front of a black background. Uh, there you could get <laughs> these errors, but the easy solution to not get it is loads of testing and being aware what the limitation is. Well, and also I think you need to say that um, there are different Debeer software. So what we do, for instance, in the beginning of a film is with you, we run some test footage through the different Debeer softwares. Then we sit in the room with you and we blow it up and see what kind of halation or funny color yeah. fringing we're getting. And each Debearing software is a little bit different. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. very interesting. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's a little hard to choose because one might be stronger in one area and weaker in another. The DBA algorithm always has a version number. And when we uh, when we worked on, what was it, in time, in 2010, mm. 2011, it was, of course, uh, version number uh, one we worked. And now we mm. are on version number five. This is nine years later. We are only on version number five, but there might be as well a version number 12 in 2030. And different vendors are always at a race. Uh, one time this vendor is better, next time that vendor mm, is better. And exactly. just by keeping the eyes open and test it again, uh, you get the better, best result for your movie. Yeah. And basically, we're debating at the daily stage, and we're also debating at the DI stage, right? Mm -hmm. I can't remember. On 1917, did we have to do two different Debear systems? No. Uh, we, we tried to in worked. the beginning and then yeah. came back to our senses and did the, <laughs> did the yeah. common yeah, DBA setting. <laughs> I mean, it yeah. is when you work on large screen movies on big pictures that you, um, at one point, somebody will see the image on an 80 foot big screen in IMAX or mm -hmm. in any other large format. And we're going to... Uh, uh, then see possible errors which we didn't see on set in the little monitor. So pretty early on, we bring the images on the big screen to evaluate everything. And definitely testing needs to be done on the big screen as well. Yeah. Could, could we just get a little bit more clarity about opposed to, you know, shooting in RAW and shooting like you were saying, some commercials, mm -hmm. the DIT will build in a color shift on the output data, whereas if you shoot raw, I mean, I'll do that with Josh, right? And Josh will change his shot a bit, but, but that'll be become part of, the, part of the metadata. metadata it won't yeah. actually change the raw file. Yeah, right. Right. Can you explain that a little bit more, what you were saying? Yeah, so the the, the this approach of keeping the raw and just using metadata to um, change the image after gives you the freedom to do something half a year later to do something different if needed. It just adds a security layer to it because the camera captures so much more than what you really need for the movie. And if you limit yourself while shooting already, you never have the freedom to go to go left, right, or up and down. Right. And um, if there's the possible error in an image, we know it's all built by humans. We don't live in paradise yet. 
Air Wars can <laughs> happen at any time. And if you just have the raw, you can counter, you can fight the error better and fix certain issues. And then let's imagine um, we want to bring out Blade Runner in 8K in 2030. We definitely want to go back to the raw and debayer to 8K. We don't want to use the 4K debayer, which we have today. We want to go back to the raw and then we have the freedom to have a higher resolution, better color gamut, more dynamic range available. And yeah. you could you could do that. You could go back to the raw, uh, debayer at 8K, and then overlay the, the DI timing. And basically, you wouldn't have to go through the whole process again. It's just a matter of using well, the same algorithm. Personally, I would double check it because <laughs> yeah. of the difference in resolution. You would, you that would, would be me. You would, you would definitely check it because, yeah. I mean, the image looks different in different yeah, formats 8K will probably look different, but yeah, yes, a, but you have the basic DI timing put in, and and yeah. so in the beginning when we're setting up and everything before we actually shoot, we actually have you come in and you calibrate our monitor, which is a P3 monitor, mm -hmm. but you also calibrate the Rec 709s on the set mm -hmm. because although it won't be exactly the same, it'll be a lot closer and save us a lot of grief. And I also ask you to go to editorial so editorial can feel that they're seeing the same image that we are. And mm -hmm. mostly they love that, that, that we've taken that extra step. Yeah, very, very important since the director will sit with editorial for many, many hours after yes. shooting has wrapped. The director sits half a year, one year, however long editorial takes and if the editorial monitoring environment is set up wrong, the director would fall in love with what she or he sees there for many weeks and months. And when they then come to our theater where everything is right, it would look different compared to the wrong setup and editorial. So there we, yes. we appreciate your efforts there to help us to get in. Only having been through it in film sometimes where something wasn't printed quite right, but we, oh yeah, no problem, we will change it later. But by the time later comes around, they've fallen in love with that blue shot. Yeah. And it's mm -hmm. always going to be blue. But there's also, I mean, I've heard stories, that luckily not happened to me, nearly happened to me once, but if the monitor, on-set monitor is not calibrated to the screen in the DI room, and which is calibrated again to the cinema theater, you can you can get a, a false sense of security, and you could keep kind of stopping down. Yeah, and uh -huh. I've heard a number of occasions where on on large movies they've gone back to watch their dailies on a big screen and found everything's been underexposed, and they notice a sort of noise and a kind of flatness to the image that you would never notice on a monitor. Yeah, and then also on set the DIT can kind of tweak it to make it look better. And then you never know where you are because these days there's no such thing as like printer lights as we have with film. So there's no standardization of what is the right exposure. So you have to, you have to calibrate all, the whole system all the way through so that you know when you're looking at that onset monitor, you're in the right place. I've got another question too that because I know how we do it, but I don't know how other people do it, but can someone create their own LUT on yeah. their computer? Uh, uh, how? Uh, you, you cannot believe when we ask, uh, how should your movie look like? You cannot believe how often we hear Lawrence of Arabia. 
make our movie look like Lawrence of Arabia. Have to go to Morocco, then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just go to the desert and shoot it there. And and uh, the the first answer is uh, it's a Kodak print film pre-visualization lot. But then we have different variations, uh, like there's the grain level, the halation of the film stock, there's gate weave. There's not only color, there's a lot of other film grain, a lot of other elements going oh, yeah, in. There. There's the cameraman as well. <laughs> and then the cameraman. <laughs> and but. and uh, so, and then we also need to ask the question, which camera do you use? And uh, what's your primary destination? Do you go OTT over the top? Do you go to the cinema? Uh, uh, is it for television or cinema? And then we we build a package and have uh, a couple of op options available. The cinematographer then wants to go out with that camera with the same package of lenses um, and shoot something like a hair and makeup test and a fabric test, perhaps, brings the footage in. And then we go through the different LUTs and ask like this one, like that one, or like that one. How, what do you think here? What do you think there? We also perhaps want to capture indoor, outdoor footage, uh, day and night footage, have this all available. Then we pick one which comes closest. And on top of this, the colorist then tweaks it a little bit to bring it to perfection. And when this is done, then we lock the look. Yeah. But what I was asking is, can I, as an individual, make a lot without doing it through you? Ah, yes, yes. There, there's freeware available now. Um, so many of the color correction tools, which you can download and use at home, have the option at the end, now make a lot. Uh, uh, and it gives you the look which you have created right here and then looking at your monitor. So now, yeah. mm, <laughs> is yeah. your monitor calibrated right? Then I want to recommend you um, uh, uh, calibrate your monitor. So you can buy uh, tools. Uh, uh, they are $200 monitor probes out there, which can be used to calibrate. We sometimes send them to the field to verify that a customer, right. yeah, who, right. a customer yeah. who watches dailies or a DIT can verify that the calibration is still right. But if you have no other option, you can use these tools in the first place, at least to get your monitoring environment right. So the first step I would recommend, if you want to make your own lookup table, take care that you work in a calibrated environment. A calibrated environment and a dark room. Would you say? Oh, yeah. Ambient lighting, how we call it. Mm -hmm. So um, the easiest way to control the lighting is make your room dark. And uh, it's not only switching off the light. Also take care that your back wall is dark and that your ceiling and everything is dark because the picture which gets displayed on your monitor reflects to the back wall and comes back into your monitor. So darken the room is not only switching the light off, it's uh, taking care that you have no reflections as well in the room. Right, but it, and it's also sitting in that room for a while before you actually make a decision because yeah. it's true, isn't it? If you just turn off a practical light, your, your eye has been uh, adjusted to a tungsten source and if you just close a blind on a day, then it's a totally different effect. So you, it does take a while. Yeah, I, I mean, I've noticed that just in... In the DI suite and stuff, it takes you a good five minutes or more to, to really allow your eyes to adjust. 
When we um, are on location and create a daily suite where we're going to process the dailies and everything, and I'm always talking with the production about what we can do and what places might work, but we always have to have a place where we can paint the walls black or put something black on the walls. And it's amazing how many people don't want their walls painted black. <laughs> yeah, and there was one There was one suite, I forget where it was now, it's probably just as well I forget, mm-hmm. because it was a great big bright exit sign that was bright red. Right, yeah. And you think, well, that light's there all the time while you're looking at something on the screen. That is affecting your color vision, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's a no-brainer, but... <laughs> it's amazing how they don't want to get rid of those yeah. signs, too. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah, so I, I made a map of theaters in Los Angeles where I don't want to watch a movie again because the exit <laughs> yeah. sign is right next yeah. to the screen, possibly yeah. left and right. Uh, yeah. It's nicer if the exit sign is on the side of the room or behind you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Also in this process while we're shooting the movie is oftentimes the visual effects people will start their work. So we have to work out how they're getting their work, what they're getting, are they getting an EXR file or whatever. And when you make an EXR file, I know you're going from the LTO, which is the backup, so you're basically debaring it again, which is why when we do the debair tests too, I always let the visual effects people know what we're using because they might have a say in that too. Yeah, the the beauty of working with VFX vendors is that most of them have an imaging scientist in their organization as well, so that we can talk one and one and use the same wording and the same language and get this one right. And uh, yes, so um, we debate for dailies color accurate, but in a lower resolution, and then the selected takes go in a higher resolution to the VFX vendor. And there we actually have the option to sometimes even go 8K if we then want to. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, we, we definitely want to send the highest possible resolution in the high bit depth and white color gamut to the VFX vendors. Yeah, Right. And we're trying to give the raw material without the LUT baked in because what we're trying to do is no baked in color. So we send them also a reference Mm -hmm. that has our timing on it at that point. It may be daily's timing. It might be DI, depending what spot in the uh, process we're in. Yeah, the VFX vendor then has to give back two deliverables, the high-resolution, high-quality unlutted, but also a lutted color-corrected one, which then intercuts back in editorial. So right. um, uh, it helps them a lot that we send them the dailies reference to to get the color right for both deliverables. Yeah, That's right. We have a whole workflow for the editors, too, where they're oftentimes on Avid's and they need their avid media and what's the resolution going to be what are they going to do with it i know that's what like on 1917 or, or blade runner or something we insisted that we would get a raw file back from the effects houses um so there was no no baked in color shift or anything how how usual is that is that what most people do now i mean obviously i'm not aware of. yeah yeah so it is the exr file format which gets used um so it's it's debayered but in terms of color and and adjustment it's raw but it's already debayered so we go then from a, a camera raw into exr 
not colored and not LUTed, the VFX vendor gets all the metadata to be able to edit to that that unprocessed image uh, so that they can see how it looked like when we were in dailies. Uh, they do their compositions and their modifications, take the color and the LUT off and send us the same format back so that it intercuts into our DI timeline seamlessly. And we right. use the one we show LUT. But exactly, James, while our uh, colorist then as well has the dailies reference and can quickly check back that what we get yeah. back from VFX uh, is true again. Yeah. Well, and remember, we were on a movie that I won't name. And, of course, it was right down to the wire, and we were getting oh, to the this? deadline. Yeah, And we got some visual effects back that looked just wrong, yeah, just absolutely wrong. And, and But they said, no, 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 we haven't baked it in, we haven't done this, blah, 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 blah. And we sat down at a table with you guys, with a conference call with those guys, and they, it was just a little setting in their file, I think, when they created the final file that was indeed baking in the timing, mm -hmm. which is why it looked double-lutted. It, it just looked wrong to us when we got it into the DI. So you are always there when we run into something that doesn't look right, figuring out what's wrong with it. Yeah, while while um, we are we are always there in person or we are there remotely. It's interesting how in days now that we have to do a, a lot of remote work, how we now can say, "Hey, we did it already," because um, we need um, intelligent and knowledgeable people to perhaps not only on work work on one movie. We we always have to like uh, spread it out a little, and uh, whenever you are on a production somewhere else in the world, we can remotely log in in a secure way to look at images or download images and give feedback. That's right, because when we run into an issue, I always have you look at it while I'm troubleshooting there, because you may come up with a solution that I don't think of, so... <laughs> yeah, I remember that well. While while I think this all works because during the testing phase we we sat together and made a plan and uh, yeah. do stick to it, and then from there on we can spread out and do our work kind of remotely. But um, I think the testing phase is the main key, which then makes a remote workflow like that or remote debugging possible. Yeah. Yes, and also I mean we're we're very lucky because when we shoot. We have you come in right before we're starting shooting, oftentimes a week before when we're doing a lot of tests and the first week of shooting. So we have this extra pair of eyes on top of it while we're so focused on starting the shoot and a lot of our focus is on the set. But you're behind us making sure that everything's going through all right. The workflow that we've set up is actually working. So we do appreciate that. I wanted to ask because I understand that on certain movies, there's more than one LUT, which is different than us. We have one LUT, and that's it. So how many LUTs could be on a movie? Well, the, that's, the answer is the safest way is if you have one LUT, and every yes. <laughs> if you derive <laughs> from it, you are in danger that human error sets in. Uh, mm -hmm. You, of course, want to manage it and computerize and do metadata management to get it all locked and secure it, but it always fails at one point. 
for example, very often we use different LUTs on movie shoots where different cameras are used. It might be that the drone uses that camera, then you have underwater housing, which uses that camera. You have crash cams, which has to be cheaper. And uh, so the, the most case for different LUTs is input lookup tables. And then uh-huh. uh, we have the creative look LUT and we have the output lookup table to match the monitor. So these are the core LUTs which are used in a production. The input lookup table to make different cameras match. The creative lookup table to satisfy the creative need of the director and the DP. And then the output LUT to make your image look the same on Rec. 709, P3 mm-hmm. or Rec. 2020. Now, if you use... The same LUT for all your cameras because you use the same camera. And if you use the same creative LUT because you only have one mindset and you choose one and you use filters and lighting to change your look, that adds an immense safety layer to a production. Yeah. Yes, I couldn't imagine being in the DI, which is pressured enough and we're coming to the end of the time and everything, having that added element why does this look wrong? Oh, wait, what lot is on this? I'm really happy we don't do that. And I get quite often asked, can we use different LUTs, one LUT per shot? Uh, uh, Or or (laughs) is is it possible? And then as a scientist, I have to say, yes, it's possible. But then as a human, I say, well, think about it. Have mercy with the people who have to work with it later, because it's <laughs> it's not only one person working on a movie. It's uh, different yes, stages in time, that's a good point. different uh, different locations in the world, and you work in January, April, and December 2015, 2016. So there's a lot of moving parts in a movie production. Yeah. Yeah. So now I have a huge question. ACES workflow versus the workflow that we do. I don't really know ACES that much. It was explained to me one time when it had first come up and whether we were going to do our traditional workflow or that, and we chose our traditional workflow. Mm -hmm. But you want to tell us a little bit about ACES? So ACES stands for Academy Color Encoding System. So the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Science decided to help the movie-making community. They have different projects going on. One of them is ACES. It's basically a color management system. So I worked at uh, Technicolor with Josh Pines before, one of my mentors. Then I worked at eFilm with Bill Feitner, one of my mentors. And I work very close with Photochem. And each organization has their imaging science in place. And all of them can make beautiful movies and They just have to tell you to stick to their program and uh, from beginning to end, don't change, stick to the procedure. Now, ACES um, did build this system which sits right in the middle, tries to use the best out of all these developments, which were done separate at different facilities. So now you have a common color management system. So if you now start from scratch and you don't need your own look, you could go to ACES. But if you have your own look in mind and you are settled with what you want to have, 
you don't need to go to ACES because you have a working workflow going and you don't need to go for it. Um, ACES is actually good for productions which don't have an imaging scientist necessarily on mm. staff. That's true. That's yeah, true. Yeah. I feel like the workflow that we create is is particularly focused on what we're doing and what we're shooting with and how we're planning to use it. While if we were used an ACES program, it's more of a combination of all these different ways. So it's not necessarily the best way for us with what we're shooting. If we can follow it through the way that we follow it through, I don't see any reason not to do the workflow that we do. Although I think it's great that there is some sort of um, standard out there being as how the different cameras uh, behave so differently sometimes and their workflow is so different. Yeah, I, I think there you said it. If you if you want to use many different cameras of different manufacturers, which you which I haven't seen you doing, <laughs> uh, but if no. you want to do it, then ASUS helps you to get you into the ballpark as close as possible without having to spend a lot of energy on it. Yeah. So when Ari, for instance, comes out with a new camera like the LF that had a different chip formation, mm -hmm. does that change your color science? Um, so we are in very close contact with Ari. The beauty of Ari is, again, the service underneath of the camera. Um, they contact all the players and let them know what's coming long before a cinematographer can get their hands on it. So we are able to verify that the imaging science is right. But the same Loxy curve, which always did uh, suit the image quality uh, coming out of this camera, is in the new camera, in the Alexa LF. So we can easily intercut and uh, adapt and use it. The resolution is, uh, is higher. What then makes the noise floor easier to look at when you come to the darker part of the image or when you have to boost the image. So um, it, it visually gives you a higher dynamic range because you can now boost the image wider because the annoying digital noise is not that visible anymore. So um, I think from the imaging science point of view, the higher resolution of the Alexa LF um, helped with the dynamic range first. And then, of course, uh, when you want to go to 4K displays, uh, being on a 4K source is beneficial. Then I remember how all of us were sitting at an IMAX theater in London uh, looking at the <laughs> images of Skyfall. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, when was this Skyfall? 2011, I guess. <laughs> and uh, the, the image width was 2880. And we went to the big screen and couldn't see any problem with it. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I always remember that screening because I thought the image was quite staggering. For yeah, yeah. So it was actually the same year when the iPad came out, and I don't know if you remember this story. So you, Roger, I'm and sure I do. <laughs> you, Roger, and James were sitting in front of me. I was sitting a little bit in the back and peeked on my iPad and on the IMAX screen and looked at it all the time and did verify yeah. because I wasn't sure if it really matches. I need this dual stimulus again because it was the first iPad we got. So we characterized the iPad, made a lookup table, showed it. 
And I then tried to find the right timing to show it to you. And of course, I picked the wrong timing because we were, <laughs> yeah. we were outside of the theater and waiting for a taxi. And I showed you the iPad and you looked at me like, oh, my God, why should yes. I look at this small image now? I just saw an IMAX image. <laughs> I do oh. remember that. Yeah, relative viewing distance. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So based on that story, um, it teach all of us that resolution might be um, good for other things. But if you yes. have the raw uh, image and then debayer it from a lower resolution to 4K, you you don't see an error in it uh, yeah mm. coming from that camera mm. yeah mm. yeah it was quite a startling uh, image quality yeah. yeah but then i want to say today in 2020 there's a couple of 4k 6k and 8k cameras out there and um, the race of quality is getting closer to each other then another reason i see is uh, security of operation do you need one button to switch on the camera or do you need five buttons and 10 submenus to go to a picture? <laughs> so the ease of operation helps imaging science as well. We are very mm. clever, kind of. We prove it every day, but we can get confused by submenus and too many options. And oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Jay-Z, have you seen Steve Yedlin's uh, piece on color science and resolution? Yeah, Steve Yetlin and I worked together on movies before, and we gave Semti presentations together. So um, he's a good friend, and we we talk to each other in the same language. I think he doesn't have a lot of friends at ASC meetings because he's gonna, gonna meet a lot of creative people there and not so many scientists. So he's very special and very knowledgeable. And I hope not everybody, every cinematographer turns into a Steve Yetlin because otherwise I'm gonna lose my job because he does everything by himself and in a very good way. Yeah. Yeah. And why I brought it up, I would ask because basically his thesis or the point of his research was that camera manufacturers are resorting to more Ks and going to 6K and 8K and 4K for the point of potentially marketing or just getting higher resolution when there's something else to focus on in the photo sites and getting the res and getting the image better through different ways. Could you talk about that? Like how they can achieve better image results, not just through resolution and higher Ks? Yeah, uh, uh, the whole industry is asking for better pixels rather than more pixels. And uh, to reproduce the same pixel every day is actually a key in our workflow because you, you try to choose a look of a movie with lighting and filtering. And uh, Roger does things on set I don't know about since I just work on the camera, not on lighting. But uh, 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 we, we then need to take care that the capture device uh, reproduces the same quality on a daily basis, that we know what's coming. And dynamic range is the best friend of a, a movie maker as well. We don't want to clip the low lights or the highlights. And then um, the Bayer algorithm as well needs to be improved. Uh, and we work on it every time or every circle, uh, development circle, we try to improve the Bayer algorithms. 
And then there's other components in the camera. There are low-pass filters as well to take care that we don't get a moiré um, because of the structure, the Bayer pattern, that the pixels are next to each other side by side and not on top of each other. We have to group pixels together and make a new pixel out of it. This is what uh, the Bayer algorithm is doing. And um, we know which resolutions are not allowed. So we build optical low-pass filters, which dim the resolution down, so to say that you don't get into this possible error phase. So the balance between optical low-pass filter or digital low-pass filter and the Bayer algorithm is very important. Yeah. And then could you talk, you know, we've gotten into cameras a little bit. Um, talk about why people might have preferences and maybe why workflow could change that, whether somebody really likes an Alexa versus a red or somebody comes from a photo background may love the Canon skin tones instead of the Sony ones. Like, Talk about what goes into that and why they may prefer it and if it can be changed in, in the post process. Ah, yeah. It's, it's also so that uh, human eyes are made different and people see color different. So I definitely don't see the image like Roger sees it. I know it because we were sitting next to monitors together. <laughs> but my advantage is that I have a $26,000 measurement tool, which, <laughs> which kind of comes close. <laughs> but uh, so, um, uh, uh, we also see that, um, DPs pick colorists who have the same vision and the same eyesight oh, like the DP. That's interesting. Yeah, Another yeah. thing I learned. And, wow. uh, so one camera might look better to one cinematographer than the other one. And also you have different lighting techniques. You diff, you use different light sources and perhaps one camera adapts better to one light source than to the other one. Um, your whole setup, um, how fast are you panning? Which lenses do you use? It's a, it's a big system you have to uh, assemble together to get your camera package um, tested and evaluated. And uh, But I feel in 2020, the high-end cameras are very close together now to each other. And then there's also testing. Every camera camera has a limit in its dynamic range, in its low-level behavior, highlight clipping. So if you test your camera to perfection and uh, know where your boundaries are, you you can get very good results with with many of these cameras out there. Is that? Can you talk about? I mean, what's the reality of the difference between? a 4K camera and 8K camera. I mean, that's what Steve Yedlin was really talking about, wasn't mm -hmm. it? That you mostly, you know, view in distance from a screen uh, and basically the human eye doesn't really tell anything over 2K, does it? Yep. But if you've got a higher resolution camera, that gives you more dynamic range to be able to play with the image, but it doesn't necessarily translate to um, an optically better picture in, in mm -hmm. regular viewing situation, right? Yeah, I think so too, because only the first row or the, f the second row in a theater might see a difference between 4K and 8K. Uh, yeah, so it, it helps with the noise floor that it's just more random because it's smaller, the 8K image, and it helps perhaps with aliasing that you have a very strange pattern coming in but um, if you have the right viewing control set up on set, uh, uh, you protect for it. 
Um, there's also the question, um, is 8K available in uncompressed RAW? And that's not available here and today. 8K cameras which record 8K are all recording clip-based with a certain compression setting there. It's visual lossless, this compression, but it does something. It's not uncompressed. Mm. So at the moment, we, we fight the battle between resolution and compression ratio. Um, and then also we fight with uh, data throughput. Like how fast can you get your 8K shipped around? And the easy answer for the producer is just compress it higher, which mm. then <laughs> might generate artifacts at one point. Right. Isn't it true that every camera compresses on the output in some way? Even the Alexa compresses the image, even though maybe it might be less than other cameras. Yeah, it's so that um, uh, uh, the Bayer pattern, since we uh, we compress with a Bayer, Bayer sensor right away by three and a half, perhaps, because we don't capture every pixel. We actually have to use three pixels to make one pixel. So that's the Bayer pattern resulting compression, perhaps. It's a spatial compression. I think there's no name for it. But that's right. the way how the, the Alexa would would uh, compress a signal, yeah. While the right. Arri RAW then stays pretty raw, yeah. <laughs> there's there's no after process after we got the image from the sensor, yeah. Right. Jay Z, we talk about Rec seven hundred nine and Rec twenty twenty P three, all these, and I've heard some talk of future proofing and having it be available in years to come or in a hundred years when someone wants to watch something. Can you talk about the importance of that or why future-proofing, what it means and why it may be important or why it may not matter at all and what our eyes can see doesn't change? Like, Just talk about why people are doing that. Yeah, so future-proofing uh, and color spaces, that's an interesting question. It's actually, we, we have a look in mind for our movie. We then go through the DI and lock it and that's our movie. If now a new standard comes out, do we now create a new look of our movie or not? That's often the question. And we didn't talk about HDR yet, high dynamic range, which is very interesting. So future proofing means we have the raw uncompressed image and can go into other directions if other standards come out. Do we want to or not is the first question. Or do we want Lawrence of Arabia to always look like Lawrence of Arabia? Um, mm -hmm. when we when we talk about dynamic range now and high dynamic range, that's standard. So the the color gamut p three rec seven nine rec twenty twenty talks about saturation. and high dynamic range talks about how black and how bright can we get. So the beauty of HDR is also the black level, that we um, have a different black level. Some might call it a better black level, but do we want a better black level or do we want to stay where we are? Um, and out there listening to our customers, it's a 50-50 chance that somebody says, yes, I want to make a new version or no, make my movie as it looked 10 years ago look like the same way on this new standard. Yeah. But there isn't, isn't there a question now, if you took Lawrence of Arabia, because you mentioned it, and if you were sitting in a cinema, if you saw a print off the original negative, it would probably very unlikely you ever did, mm -hmm. you would see it a couple of generations down to an IPIN. 
Now, you could, in theory, go back to that original negative and produce an image digitally that has no quality loss from the original negative. So mm -hmm. closer to what they so, originally wanted. Well, it's closer to what they mm -hmm. shot, but it's nothing... It's not closer to what an audience ever saw when that film was made. Yeah. So it's an interesting question, isn't it? It's like, you know, it, we had this when we were doing um, a new DI on Oh Brother Out Thou. Right. It's like, well, do you do you now change that look because, because you actually do could do a scan now that would be, you know, higher resolution than the one point eight we did at the time. And the technology has changed, yeah. so you can actually get more of what you were trying. The first time. Yeah, but you're actually then making a different film. So Lawrence of Arabia today, if you went from the negative, original negative, would not be the same film visually that, that the audience saw when it was first released. Yeah. So uh, Rec 2020 now goes pretty much to the outside boundary of the CIE chart, was the, what the human eye can see. So to talk about future-proof, Rec 2020 is a pretty good standard to be future-proof because that the human eye will change takes another 10 to 20 million years. So uh, uh, Rec 2020. Oh, really? That long? <laughs> <laughs> My eyesight's changing actually every year. No, but that's, that's, I think that's something else. <laughs> Did you know, Roger, that I installed the color corrector at Cinecide, which then was used to do, oh, brother, where are they? Oh, no, I never yeah. knew that. I'm learning so much today. Okay, there's so many secrets you I have, Jay-Z. Yeah, so there My was Cinecide, uh, Cinecide London. I worked in London at the time for the Pandora yeah, yeah. Pogel color corrector. And then ah. there was Cinecide uh, right down the road from eFilm on yeah, Las yeah. Palmas, yeah. where I installed yeah, yeah. a Pogel color corrector. But long before yeah. you came in, so it was... Um, Uh, the installation and then time for the colorist and the assist to get used to it. And right. then I think, oh, brother, where are there was the first movie used on that system. Yes. Yeah. 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 And the system was great. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. <laughs> no, no, it just, it crashed every now and again. Yeah. No, it wasn't your screen. It was yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the, The, um, yeah, I didn't build a computer. I did no, build no, the trackballs. Exactly. The trackballs always <laughs> yeah, did yeah. run round. Yeah, They were smooth. brilliant. And it was the data city that kept crashing, which was like yeah. a problem. But no, I mean, it was amazing technology. Wow. This has been very interesting. My head hurt. My head hurts now. He always does talk in a Jay-Z. My head hurts. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want more information and further discussion, check out the forums at www rogerdeacons.com Becoming a member is free and you can ask follow-up questions there. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more new questions and topics. Also, check us out on Instagram at team.deacons See you next time!